We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome back. This is the uh, Truman Book Review, and uh, we're in Chapter 9. I think this is uh, Session 10. And uh, Chapter 9 is called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And Truman starts off by saying that the triumph of the erotic, which was the last chapter, needs to be understood in the wider context of selfhood and human fulfillment. And he mentions Philip Reef's book, which was called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, and he wrote that back in 1966. And so that's probably why he's titled this chapter the same. But you know, when I read the word therapeutic, and we've seen that several times, I thought, well, maybe we, sh maybe I should make sure I understand what therapeutic means. And I had heard the pastor there in Glenwood Springs use that he talked about moral therapeutic, moralistic therapeutic deism. So I looked that up and that comes from a guy named Christian Smith, who in 2005 wrote a, a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Have you ever heard of that? I had not until you sent it to me for review. Yeah. So I just looked it up on Wikipedia and it said the five basic tenets of that book um, were a, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to solve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. I'm, you know, he, he titled that the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers, but I don't think that sounds like that's unique to American teenagers. That sounds like the average American, you know, view of Christianity for as long as I can remember. Oh, you, do you mean that sounds like our social imaginary? <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, all those things, e even trying to define uh, what these authors are meaning by the use of that term therapeutic, I can't help uh, laughing to myself remembering some of the old Saturday Night Live sketches when they had this guy. He was one of the writers, and if I'm not mistaken, he became a, a – either a senator or a rep. I think he might have been a senator from Minnesota. 
Were one you? of the Saturday Night Live writers, Stuart, Stuart Smalley was the name of his character on Saturday Night Live. And they'd have this little skit, uh, Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley, you know, and he'd say, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. You know, all these literally kind of mamby-pamby affirmations. And it sounds almost like in entertainment form, what these guys mean when they use that term therapeutic, like they want to affirm whoever you decide you want to be. Right? right. So it's, so it's therapeutic. So the, the funniest uh, sketch he ever did was he had Michael Jordan on and he, he was on Stuart Smalley, you know, daily affirmations with uh -huh. Stuart Smalley and, and uh, Stuart Smalley saying, I know you probably struggle with, um, being a good basketball player and Jordan sitting there going, I really don't struggle with that. You know, he's going, I know that that rim looks so small and the ball is so big and J Jordan can't even keep a straight face, you know? And so Jor Jordan would say, no, that, that's not my issue. And uh, Stuart Smalley would go, oh, I guess Cleopatra isn't the only queen of denial. <laughs> I mean, it was just the funniest skit, but I, I think that's what they're driving at. The therapeutic is is that massaging, that comforting massage of who you've decided to be. So imagine, for instance, I've always wondered about this, looking in the mirror in your, in your bathroom, and it's like you just got out of the shower or something, mm -hmm. and you're gay and you look in the mirror, what goes through your subconscious? You know, like I am a man, right? Mm -hmm. But but I'm acting like a woman. And so you have to, the therapeutic, the triumph of the therapeutic is all day long, you have to massage that lie and and make it work for you because you know it's just a flat out lie yeah. and I don't mean I don't mean that to be harsh I mean, I'm not you know I have no desire necessarily to attack the gay community other than I I will attack a lie because lies will kill you and imagine what that the emotional pressure that takes to to live that lie every day I think that's what they're driving at with the therapeutic, right? How, how to affirm whatever decision you've made about who you are has to be affirmed 24-7 because it's going to fly in the face of reality if, if you're following our culture. Right, right. Well, that third point in that Christian Smith's book was the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. And... Uh, that sounds a whole lot like what Truman has been talking about it, it all is, through it, this book. You can hear me sort of chuckle. I, I can't even read that stuff with a straight face. <laughs> you know, you imagine building this country on that sort of thinking. Right. Or fighting Hitler with that sort of thinking. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing that, as Dr. Phil used to say, is how's that working out for you? <laughs> <laughs> And we talked about Google search statistics a couple of times ago, 
And I was talking with the guy that's helping me with the web stuff for Bible.org. And he goes, oh, well, here, let's look up some search statistics. The word depression was searched for 397,000 times last month. And suicide hotline was searched for 148,000 times. Or how to commit suicide was searched for 14,000 times. Yeah. And, you know, things like Sobering. When, when, when will Jesus return and search for 1,000? Yeah. So sobering, that's it, such sobering data, but it gets back to the fact that living a lie is very difficult, especially of that sort of magnitude. You, you know, when you're lying yeah. to yourself about who you really are, that that's 24-7 pressure to keep that up. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a lot of unhappy, hurting people out there. Of course. And and the message of our culture isn't working. So when Truman talks about the triumph of the therapeutic, it has triumphed as the dominant belief system, but it's a failure on the practical level. Very good. Then his uh, section, he starts, he calls it the Supreme Court and gay marriage. And he talks about how the Supreme Court's supposed to decide cases based on what the Constitution means, what the founding fathers intended, you know, when they wrote it. And that concept is known as originalism. So yep. that was. Let's, know, let's back up. Let's back up one sec. Cause I, yeah. I apologize for not doing this off the start, but he often has such a good, you know, he's got the title of the chapter and then he'll have like a little one liner quote. Oh, yeah. From someone in the end. And this one is so good. I'm, I'm sorry to pause where you were going. But uh, so the title of chapter nine is the triumph of the therapeutic, as you've mentioned. But then underneath it has a quote from Algernon Swinburne. Glory to man in the highest. For man is the master of things. So I heard the. I wish I could attribute this quote to who originally said it. But I can't. I don't know who it was. But it was such a good one sentence explanation of the chaos in the world that began ever since Genesis chapter three. But the quote goes In the beginning, God created man in his image. And ever since, man has returned the favor. And it, that's exactly what's going on, right? Glory to man in mm-hmm. the highest. Yeah. For man is the master of things. Oh my goodness. We're in such trouble. But anyway, please go on. You were, you were getting into the Supreme court stuff. Yeah. So the conservatives have traditionally been originalists and the other side thinks that the constitution's a living document and changes its meanings as culture changes. And so these people use phrases like being on the right side of history yeah. Don't you see that same issue in theology? I do. I, I, uh, I remember going to an ETS meeting. I don't remember where we were that year, but uh, I think it was Craig Blazing and some other people were up at the podium giving their sides of the debate, but they were debating something called reader response. Yeah. And so the idea was that you know, some one side was arguing original authorial intent, and the other yeah. side was saying, "Well, you know, if you're in Indonesia and you read the Bible, it has a total different interpretation." And 
matter of fact, I remember some guy wrote a book saying that books don't have a specific meaning. The reader can make the book mean whatever it wants. And I, I kind of thought that was a little ironic that someone who believed that would bother to write a book. Yeah, it's self-defeating. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why are you writing a book? Because I can make that book mean whatever I want. So why are you trying to get your point across? If you don't really have a point, the point depends on me, not the author. It's so silly. Well, it's kind of remind, reminds me of a Shirley MacLaine wrote a book. I think it was out on a limb. I'm not sure if that's the one, but she basically was saying that she was the only person who existed in the world that everybody else was a figment of her imagination. And yeah, I thought, why, why say that? Why are you writing a book <laughs> if there's nobody to read it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, so he's pointing out that the Supreme Court justices are humans with all their cultural baggage and that is affecting their decisions. And because of that, they were able to find support for gay marriage in the constitution. Sure. And so he goes through several court cases and he points out the inconsistency in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Um, they said they didn't want to overturn precedent in Roe v. Wade. And they turned around and overturned precedent in the Lawrence versus Texas case a few years later. And then they get rid of the Defense of Marriage Act. And so they're doing whatever's convenient or expedient to promote their agenda. Sure. And so nothing was going to stand in their way of, of promoting homosexuality. And then he pointed out that the logic of the Supreme Court justices was that the Defense of Marriage Act was rooted in animus. Yep. That's, that's our phobia term again. And then that homosexuals were viewed as a class of people. And so that's part of this whole class warfare oppressor oppressed language that he has been using all through the book so far. Yeah. So, you know, to put simply, they want to use, I, I'm not an attorney, but they want to use precedent when precedent supports what they want. They don't want to use precedent when it doesn't support, you know, it's just picking and choosing. They, there's no, it's just very clear where they're headed. Anybody can form an argument when you're not being consistent they they could care less about consistency what what trumps logic and precedence is their goal and, and their goal is to transform the society i've mentioned this one before but i i was it almost caused a car crash when i heard i had the radio on and they were it was on the news and they were interviewing the attorney for uh, trayvon martin and they asked her a question. She said, I don't know. And the reporter said, what do you mean you don't? How could you not know that you're his attorney? And she is his attorney. But her response was, I'm not his attorney. And the, and the reporter goes, well, yes, you are. I mean, she is his attorney. And she says, I'm not his attorney. I'm, I'm a social engineer. And that that's what you're seeing, right? It, being an attorney or the legal practice, many of those people who work in that field, their, their goal isn't law and order. Their goal is to transform the society. And, and that's what the Supreme Court justices are doing often. Yeah. And was it Reich who said we have to get a, a, an elite group that is going to, you know, be in our 
the upper class of our society from the colleges, the lawyers, the media, the politicians, and we're going to use them to transform society. It's, it's, uh, they're, they're militant about that. They, that's the thing that I think conservatives don't realize. For us, our energies go into worshiping the Lord, right? Walking with him. Their energies go into eliminating that. They, mm-hmm. Their energies go into politics. That That is their religion. That's, that's how they worship, is to transform the culture and in, in, to what they want and what they want is the removal of god as an authority especially as expressed by the 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 family with the father as the head of the family they want all that gone right we've seen so much in this book about the goals of all these famous people being to destroy the family because it's the foundation of our society you know married couples having children something homosexuals can't do raising children to perpetuate the society or you know, enter the workforce and be able to support their parents in their old age. Those are all necessary for civilization to survive. And um, zero population growth is a real problem in Europe and it's come to America now. Yeah. And, uh, but these Supreme Court decisions show that, you know, all these ideas of Rousseau and Marx and the Romantics and Reich have indeed triumphed. They have. And, and remember, even as Truman points out those cases, uh, there's dissent. Th- those cases aren't decided like nine nothing. Right. Those are usually five, four. And the judge that the progressives just disdain is Scalia. Right. Because he'll just point out all the f- fallacies in the reasoning. Right. You know, they, they're going to get what they want. So they're just going to trump you by outvoting you. But their logic is lacking. They don't they don't have any. They're, they're just forcing through uh, what they want to achieve. And the reason they, they force it through the courts is because they can't achieve it through through the Congress, because people in America still don't believe that. If that ever just came down to a mass vote, what does the guy on the street think about marriage? He thinks it's a man and a woman, right? <laughs> right, right? They would never get that through the Congress. So they're going to do it from the top down. They'll, they'll get it through the Supreme Court. And if they need to expand the Supreme Court to get a larger um, voice from the left, they will. Yeah. There was a lot of talk about that. Hadn't happened yet, though. Yeah, thank goodness. So the next section was called Ivy League Ethics. And in this section, he evaluates Peter Singer and his pro-choice arguments. My knowledge of Singer was that he believed that one should be able to kill the baby after it was born. Yeah. And, um, And when I read Singer's arguments against the traditional abortionist, you know, usual reasons for supporting abortion, I found him to be really, you know, very honest, um, kind of like consistent. Yeah, he's consistent, you know, kind of like Nietzsche, Uh you know, (laughs) you've killed God. Now what, you know, and so he's, he's, you know, consistent, like you say, he's honest. And in fact, Truman said, given that singers debunking of the classic liberal arguments for abortion is one with which pro-life advocates can find much common ground. 
why is it that he is probably the most notorious intellectual advocate of abortion and infanticide? If the standard rationales for abortion are so lacking, what arguments does he consider to be compelling? Well, Singer's main idea is that humans are nothing special in the animal kingdom. Right. You know, we slaughter sheep and cows for food, but then we go to great lengths to keep a you know, a cancer patient alive as long as possible. And so to him, that makes no sense since we're all just, we're just animals. Correct. And uh, which this goes back to our politics Friday discussion about man being made in God, you know, as, as God is. yes. Thank you. Very good. Very <laughs> good. But that's right. So he's going to say, forget the mamby pamby arguments, mm-hmm. right? We should be able to kill a fetus or a baby. And that's where he's going to stand. And he's going to say that because two things. One, we're just another animal, right? So obviously evolution has won the day with him. We're just another animal. And if as an animal, you can't project, you have no consciousness of your past and no plan for your future, then you don't matter. And he's going to camp on that. That's what I mean. He'll be consistent. Yeah, he, he's just not interested in, in arguments that are actually trying to persuade people. He's just in, into his dogma. Right. Right. And well, that's it, and by the way, Hampton, sorry, again, again, to to jump in there. But you imagine your kid being taught that you no. send them to Harvard and you pay whatever, $100,000 a semester, who knows what it is, right? They don't need tuition money, by the way. Their endowment is so huge. They could run that thing. But you're paying top dollar for the, quote, top, you know, professors, and that's what you're hearing in your classroom. Yeah. Well, it seemed to me that the abortion argument changed in recent years. Those arguments that Singer gave and shot down, the sled argument, have you ever heard that? Greg Kokel talks about sled. It's called size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. And so when you look at those things. Yes, size. Those, yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, why does size matter um, or level of dependency? I mean, that, that could have euthanasia ramifications, right? Oh, yeah. You know? Or what, like a three-year-old isn't still dependent? on their parents are you kidding put them out on the street see how long they last yeah yeah and then technology and the dna showing that you know this is not part of the mother's body this is an in fact a human being yeah so i think a lot of people were were convinced that yeah abortion's bad and so they kind of started changing their argument to one that fetus is not or maybe it's a human being but it's not a person and so the argument kind of moved towards being about personhood right and so that was what singer was pushing was personhood and so for him personhood meant one must have a sense of his own existence of a past present and a future and one must be autonomous and be able to make decisions as to whether to live or die Right. So if you don't meet those, then you're not a person. Right. That's that's why I uh, I'm really torn about even discussions about this sort of thing, because it's so sick 
that I don't even want to argue. I am not interested in hearing an argument for murder. You know, I, it's, it's not intellectual to me. It's the whole, the whole conversation is wrong. You cannot murder your child. That's it. There's no discussion beyond that, right? So I'm not, I'm not interested in sled or I'm not, I'm not interested in the way these things get debated. The, the answer is no, that's wrong. No debate. Yeah. It's just wrong. And, and I know that's not necessarily the right way to approach it, but there's a danger in trying to, quote, argue these things because you get sucked down into the muck when, when you're arguing. It, it's just not an argument. Yeah. Well, his logical conclusion that was that what would determine if the abortion was wrong is the effect the birth the birth will have on the parents. <laughs> yeah. If they're happy about it, then keep it. If it's maybe deformed or handicapped or it'd be a financial burden and that would make them unhappy, then kill it. Yeah. And so Truman points out that that's just utilitarianism. Yeah. And it fits with the triumph of the therapeutic where the goal is just to be happy. It's a hundred percent what it is. Mm-hmm. There's also a weird upside to it is singers very much in favor of adoption, right? Cause that'll make somebody else happy. Well, and that's, what's really weird because he <laughs> says if the parents don't want it, but some other couple does, then it would be wrong to kill it. Mm-hmm. And so how do you know, what if you didn't know during the pregnancy or maybe the first or first week after the baby's born and you're like, this is making me unhappy. So you kill your baby. And then a week later you find out someone says, Oh, I would have loved to have your baby. Yeah. So now is it wrong? Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Right. It's here's, here's what makes sense. Thou shalt not kill. Right. Done. No, no argument. That's what makes sense. He moves on to the next topic, which is the campus anti-culture. And uh, uh-huh. he talks about how all these things we've learned so far in the book have affected the universities. And one of the things that he talks about is the fatality of, you know, free speech. Mm-hmm. You know, from Marcuse, we got the idea that anything the oppressors were saying was repressive and false. And so they had to be silenced. And in the case of America, those oppressors were the founding fathers and their ideas that a moral society is required for our system of government to work. Yes. So for instance, here's how bizarre uh, this gets Hampton. If if I get in a discussion with, uh, you know, a Marxist, they're going to say, when I say thou shalt not kill, they'll say you're an oppressor because you're getting that from a, a biblical age, which is out of date right? You're just referring to these systems of the past as your authorities. And those systems have oppressed people down through the ages. They, that's, they would label me a bigot and an oppressor for saying thou shalt not kill because I'm quoting God. Right. That, that's how that argument goes. That's why I say at some point, the arguments, oh, there's no argument. You can't, there's nothing to be gained by such an absurd proposition as thou shalt kill <laughs> right? right right oh goodness so he gives an example of the um, loss of the free speech in a place called the Mid- middlebury College. middlebury i had a lot of high school friends went there oh yeah 
Yeah. Let me just wait. So that's a fun thing. You'll so you can hold this over my head forever because okay. I've learned to live with it. So it, guess what? I graduated. What number in my high school class? I I was second from the last. I, there was <laughs> I was smarter <laughs> than one guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think it's because I would go to class and say, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> yeah. Even back then, even that in the dark ages when you went to school. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't a believer then, but I certainly wasn't heavily into studies. But it, my point with that is, uh, boy, about number of kids from my class went to Middlebury. Interesting. Yeah. Well, um, this group of students rioted basically to stop a conservative person from speaking at their school. And it was a good example of them not being willing to hear the other side. And the students wrote the following. They said, we feel as though individually our voices are often ignored in face of the hegemonic Middlebury discourse, but collectively we will be able to engage with the Middlebury community more effectively. We are a radical, anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-classist, anti-ableist, and anti-homophobic, as well as strongly opposed to all forms of oppression group that rejects the structurally conservative liberal paradigm that exists at Middlebury. The reason behind our formation are many, but the predominant one is a feeling of alienation within the campus dialogue. The so-called free market of ideas on campus is an illusion, one which exists only to support one strong ideology. We may not always agree and we want to allow space to challenge each other. However, ultimately we share the same principles and intentions and are committed to moving forward with solidarity and purpose. Moreover, we acknowledge the potential and probability that the articles we publish may be messy and emotional because the things we write about will be close to our lived experiences. Rather than espousing the idea that all written work in the public eye must be dispassionate, we welcome the fact that our articles will be written with passion, with love, with anger, and overall with purpose. We are tired of having to engage with those who repeatedly devalue our experiences and values. By creating our own platform, we are unifying in the face of this intentional disregard and rejecting the idea that we must conform to the dominant Middlebury narrative. There you go. This is everything Truman's talked about for nine well, chapters. Well stated. Yes, yes. They, they have... Um, they're just, from that's the, who they are. Well, so Truman goes ahead and analyzes that probably better than you and I could. Well, let's, <laughs> yeah, but let's set that up. You want to talk about little, it first? <clears throat> well, I want to set up Truman's response a little bit because that Middlebury statement was clear. Very it, clear. If, if you didn't get that when, when Hampton just read that, go listen to that again. They are... They're not beating around the bush now. Quite often they are because they know their ideas really have to be camouflaged. That was a point blank statement of where they're coming from. And, they, and they're militant about that. So go back and read that again and then listen. Not, not you, Hampton. I mean, I mean uh, our listeners. Yeah. You know, pl play back the thing. Listen to that statement again and then listen 
to an expert surgeon. That's Truman, because he's going to take that thing apart point by point and just go, here's here's what's nuts. Well, about I mean, that. I, when I'm reading it, I'm sitting there going, we will be able to engage more effectively, you know, with the middle break. They're not engaging. They're having a riot. So they don't, they don't want, engage. they don't want engagement. They, right. they, they even say we might argue amongst ourselves. Right. Yeah. But yeah. we're not going to argue with you. We're and just we, going to shut you down. And we're anti-homophobic and we're anti-sexist and all that. So yeah. Anybody who disagrees with them, they're calling them those names. Yeah, we're the oppressors, and they're not even going to listen to the oppressors, right? That That's their point. So, so when you read Truman here, think of it in terms of the perfect surgeon to take mm -hmm. their statement apart. Right. Okay. So Truman says, the passage is a quite superb example of the radicalized politics of the therapeutic society. First, it is worth noting the language of feeling that permeates the statement and that is assumed to carry tremendous argumentative force. Articles will, be, will likely be messy and emotional because they are connected to lived experiences and written with passion, with love and anger. And the enemies are those who devalue our experiences. This is the language of subjective emotions, expressive individualism, and the therapeutic ideal that society has been cultivating. It also renders reason irrelevant or irrelevant until people are attuned to the proper emotions. So, so pause there just for a sec. It, how, I, how that comes across to me in, in Truman's you know, piercing in his wisdom to pierce to the heart of the matter. Can you imagine writing the constitution of the United States based on feeling how someone feels is the trump card and of course the instant you do that it, what you mean is how i feel like i don't care how you feel it's how i feel because you could never write a constitution based on people's feelings they differ right, right. it's insane it's insane it is his next paragraph, he says, second, the statement also assumes that the basic categories of modern identity politics are indisputable. Clearly, anyone who disagrees with the student's stand on LGBTQ plus rights is going to be dismissed, not simply as wrong, but as bigoted. The standard language of phobia is here, ruling out from the very start any notion that objecting to the fluidity that Marx's current notions of sex and identity could be based on any kind of rational reflection. Yeah, how can you imagine a Supreme Court running based on that? Well, they do we, run based on I, <laughs> I, I know, but can you imagine it? Well, well, how does X feel about this case? Okay, well, that's our decision then. And B, we don't care about B. He's gonna get, his feelings don't matter. It's, well, in that last paragraph, he said it renders reason irrelevant or irrelevant yeah. until people are attuned to the proper emotions. Right. That applies to so much in our legal system right now where the crooks that get away with things are those that are on the left and promoting the left's agenda. Yeah, there's two, and, two and tier the conservatives, justice. The conservatives are going to prison. Yes, you want to you want to uh, sick the CIA and the FBI 
on a private citizen, Donald Trump, you do that all day long. Doesn't matter how many laws you broke doing that. You, you want to put the CIA and the FBI on Joe Biden, you're going to jail instantly. Can't do it. Two-tiered justice, clear as a bell. Right. Talk about oppression. Yeah. I heard a guy say the other day that Planned Parenthood was selling baby parts, fetus parts, right? And abortion parts. And um, so that that guy went to the convention where they were i guess they have an actual like we go to ets to talk theology they had a a convention where you go to buy baby parts and so he recorded conversations showing that they were doing that and breaking the uh, the law and then kamala harris who was the da for the state of california she went after him and He's still trying to fight all that stuff to stay out of prison. He didn't do anything wrong. He was trying to show that they were doing something wrong. But that's, I think, another good example of that. Oh, yeah. Okay, the next section is called the State of Historical Discipline. Truman points out that at Harvard, one can take a course on history of Europe covering 350 years, you know, and important things like Martin Luther and the Reformation and the Renaissance. Or, and that emphasis on the or, you could just take a course on feminism and pornography or on British colonial violence. He says that there's nothing wrong necessarily with taking those in addition to if you wanted to study that. But if you take it instead of, then you're not going to have an actual accurate understanding of history. Yeah. So let's, let's, and, and, it, and it ends up with this anti historical trend that we're talking about. Yes. So let's let's slow down and say that again, because I think that goes over people's heads. Imagine you go to Harvard and you want to major in history. You're not even going to be off. You're, the classes you're going to be offered co covering some of the major sections of world history will be minimal. But the classes you're going to be offered on Pornography, feminism, etc., are going to be multiple. Imagine the absurdity of that. No, no, no. We don't care if you know what what happened in European history. We care if you know um, the history of pornography. <laughs> well, and if you did, actually, if, if you did, like take a, a course that covered World War One and Stalin and Lenin, right? You know and uh, a modern history course fascism in in you know germany uh, yeah so or nazism how would they even teach it right and so think of what what we have tried to do in our podcast on the truman book following truman's lead take you to the history of this we're going to start with rousseau and go through the history so you can see where these ideas came from. See, they have no desire to do that. They, they're anti-historical. They're do just dogmatic. They, they don't want you to know the roots of, of all these ideas. Right. So Truman says that divorcing the humanities from STEM disciplines, he didn't define it. I had to go look up STEM. Yeah. It, it stands for science, technology, engineering and mathematics good job yeah. very good <laughs> very so, very good so those areas are full of facts 
Yeah, the hard sciences. Yeah, Yeah. you kind of have to master those facts. Or, for example, you can't build a bridge over a river that will actually work if you don't understand engineering principles. And you can't you can't teach math unless you know that two plus two equals four. And there was a video that went around a year or two back. uh, This this little old lady was uh, had given the student. Um, Mark his answer wrong because the test had two plus two equals and he put 22. And so she marked him wrong and he came back with the parents and they were all upset that she had marked his answer wrong. You need to change the answer. And she goes, well, I can't change the answer because his answer's wrong. Well, for him, it's 22. And so they went to the principal and the school board and they were pressuring her to change and mark his answer correct and she refused and the media was there at the school board meeting and they finally decided and voted that they were going to um, fire her and so the school administrator pulls out the checkbook and says okay well you've been working for two weeks we need to pay you for the last two weeks let's see two weeks um for two thousand dollars, that's four thousand dollars. You know, two thousand yes. a week. And she goes, "No, it's twenty-two thousand." Right, according to what you guys are. <laughs> yes, and so the the thing just ends with him sitting there with this confused look on his face with his checkbook. You know, what's he going to do? Right. So. You know, I've, I've read a study uh, some years ago. It was so revealing uh, when you detailed what the letters stood for in STEM, where you find um, believers in higher education is the hard sciences. You, you find them in engineering, math, biology, chemistry, physics, where you find the unbelievers or the humanities. It's, it's interesting because in the, in the hardcore sciences, to your point, they're dealing with reality. God is the ultimate reality. Truth is what corresponds to reality. So you actually find a decent percentage of believers in uh, higher education in the hard sciences. But you, you find next to none in the humanities. True, Truman might be a great exception to the rule. And that was not always the case, obviously. But as... The humanities get more corrupted. It's less desirable to. Well, you're you're swimming upstream. Yes, you are. If you're in there. Um, And so I think what Truman's saying is that without an accurate view of history and the other humanities, one cannot reason reliably. But history, the humanities are rejected because they were the curricula of dead, white, Western, heterosexual males. Yeah, history is just the story of the oppressors. So they, they don't even want to teach it. Yeah, and that, that was very clear in that Middlebury students page that we, we read. It was. So that's pretty much the, the chapter. What do you want to do to conclude this? So here's a great, like I was hinting at earlier, there, there reaches a point where argument is kind of futile, you know, as long as they're setting all the terms 
And the argument actually comes down to shall we murder or not murder? You know, that just seems absurd to me. So you reach a point. It's kind of like in the evolution debate, the very first paragraph of every biology book is yeah all reasons must be naturalistic you know you yeah you, okay well you, then what uh, yeah you can't you can't appeal to the supernatural and so they've set the the debate or the the groundwork for the argument so of course because they don't and the reason for that is they are not interested in debate they, they're interested in you agreeing with them, mm-hmm. not not by persuasion, but by force. They, they just want the end result is you agree with them. So they're going to set the terms for the discussion in a way that, you know, only, only they can win. It's like playing a football game and their opponent is not allowed to make a first down or throw the ball or hike the ball or run. Well, who, who's going to win? <laughs> right. So, yeah. Anyway, let's read Jeremiah chapter 25, start in verse 15. But I want to set the table for this a little bit because uh, Judah had reached a point in its history where there was no longer argument. The argument against what Jeremiah was saying was to throw him in a well. Mm-hmm. It, it, it wasn't to argue with him. It wasn't to listen to God. It was to silence all opposition. So at that point, Put yourself in Jeremiah's sandals. Imagine you're Jeremiah, and this is what happened to you. So the Lord, the God of Israel, spoke to me in a vision. Take this cup from my hand. It's filled with the wine of my wrath. Take it and make the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they've drunk it, they will stagger to and fro and act insane. For I'll send wars sweeping through them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand. I made all the nations to whom he sent me drink the wine of his wrath. I made Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its officials drink it. I did it so Judah would become a ruin. I did it so Judah, its kings, and its officials would become an object of horror and of hissing scorn, an example used in curses, such as already becoming the case. I made all of these other people drink it, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his attendants, his officials, his people, the foreigners living in Egypt, and all the kings of the land of Uz. All the kings of the land of the Philistines, the people of Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, the people who had been left alive from Ashdod, all the people of Edom, Moab, Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, all the kings of the coastlands along the sea, the people of Dedan, Tima, Booz, all the desert people who cut their hair short at the temples, all the kings of Arabia, who live in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, all the kings of Media, all the kings of the north, whether near or far from one another, and all the kingdoms which are on the face of the earth. After all of them have drunk the wine of the Lord's wrath, the king of Babylon must drink it. (laughs) How so, you know, the opposite, right? Opposite of being drunk, how sobering. 
mm-hmm. is that, you know, God is going to pour out his judgment on the insane and drive them even further insane, insane, right? Remove their ability to reason because they've taken a stance that's so absurd to begin with. That That's what I see coming down the pike. Yeah. So, and w- one, one last way um, to end our session today, we'll get into this much further at a later time, but I want people to know the, um, the construct of the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to refer to a, a verse in Deuteronomy in just a second, but I want people to know when you're reading the book of Deuteronomy, you're reading a suzerain vassal treaty from the right. ancient Near East, right? right? You're reading a king talking to his people. So th- that book is so closely laid out in those terms. So first you're going to get the preamble. Then you're going to get the historical prologue. Then you're going to get the general stipulations. We know those as the Ten Commandments. Then you're going to get the specific stipulations, which are details of how the general stipulations work out. How do you apply? Don't steal, don't lie, things like that. Then you're going to get the blessings and the curses. Then you're going to get the witnesses. That's how the book of Deuteronomy is laid out. But I just want people to know that as I turn there to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 7, um, I just want people to know the, the structure of that book. Here's Deuteronomy 32, verse 7. So we're at the, you know, at the end, not the very end, but at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And this verse reads as follows. Remember the ancient days. Bear in mind the years of past generations. Ask your father and he will inform you your elders, and they will tell you, right? Listen, remember your history, right? Ask your father and your elders. And so today we're just faced with this onslaught of anti-history. Don't ask your father. Don't ask the elders. Don't learn what happened in the past. You know, just listen to us. And in Deuteronomy, it's 15 times uses the command, remember. Mm-hmm. It's just such a powerful command towards the study of history. That's yeah, where I thought good. we'd leave it. Good summary. Good thoughts. Okay, well, uh, thanks a lot. And we'll do this next time. Can't wait, Hampton. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect.